Good morning. My name is Alan Mandap, and I serve as pastoral assistant for Redeemer Dubai. So today we are continuing our series in the Psalms. And um, please turn your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 51. So Psalm 51 is one of the most well-loved and well-cherished and well-known to many. And so I'm really, really excited to um, see what God has for us through this psalm. And kids and tweens and youth, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that you can join us. If there's anything confusing uh, from today, feel free to ask your mom or your dad, or in that case, me. Um, before we dive into the Word, let's pray. Oh, Father, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive your Word. Give us a broken and contrite heart. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me begin by telling you a story. Um, it's a true story about a couple. I know a guy who several years ago committed adultery. He had an affair outside of his marriage, and he thought he hid it well. However, after several months, he received a text message, the sister um, of whom he had an affair, and the sister's message is, my sister is pregnant. You are the father. Not knowing what to do, he, he immediately deleted the text and never responded, praying that this come to nothing. However, just the next day, the same sister messaged his wife, and she brought the news. You can just imagine the brokenness, the devastation that his wife felt. Needless to say, their world collapsed that day. And to some degree, that's similar to the context of Psalm 51. If you have your Bibles, you can look on top of verse 1. There's a um, superscript. Let me read that for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. So if you have been with us for the last several weeks, you would know that that's called a superscript. It helps us to, um, to know who is the author of the psalm. Sometimes it gives a note to the choir master. But the superscript in this psalm gives us more. When we see the word when, it tells us about a timeline. We see that the, the, the passage says, um, a son of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So it helps us to see that this is talking about the historical background of this psalm. Meaning this psalm is written in response to that historical event. And that historical event is, is 
we can find that in 2 Samuel verse chapter, chapters 11 to 12, and we will do well if we talk about that a little bit. Now, many of us are familiar with the story. It's about when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then he orchestrated the murder of Uriah. But as a refresher, let me tell you what happened back then. So some of us remember it was spring. That's when the time, uh, that's when the kings go to battle, right? But guess what? Where was David? He remained in Jerusalem. He was the king, but he sent Joab, his commander, to go to war. That already smells trouble. And then, as King David was walking on top of the palace, he saw a woman bathing, Bathsheba. It was actually, she was actually the wife of Uriah, who is also one of David's mighty men, who is at this very moment is in the battlefield. What did David do? He didn't care at all. He abused his power. He sent men to take Bathsheba, and he laid with her. Things turn sour quickly from here. Bathsheba came to David and said, I am pregnant. What did David do? So David, he wanted to hide this sin. He called Uriah from the battlefield, and then he was assuming, of course, when Uriah comes back, he would sleep with his wife. However, Uriah, being the patriotic man that he is, he didn't sleep with his wife. He couldn't tolerate it. He couldn't tolerate the idea. His brothers are camping on the, on the battlefield. So the next day, David threw a party, made Uriah drunk, and this time he would sleep with his wife, right? Not so. David's plan didn't work. So David gave him the ultimatum. David wrote a letter to Joab, and which basically says, Set Uriah in the forefront of battle, the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He rolled the letter, put his king seal on it. Guess what? Hand it over, handed it over to Uriah. So he basically made Uriah the messenger of his own death letter. He orchestrated the murder of Uriah, and indeed, Uriah died. Finally, David can marry Bathsheba and live happily ever after. Or is it? 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 27 says, But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. God was displeased with David. This is how serious sin is against a holy God. And in 2 Samuel um, chapter 12, we see God's mercy. God sent Nathan, the prophet, to rebuke David to repentance. So Nathan told David a parable about this rich man who took the 
only lamb of this poor man. And while Nathan was telling about that story, David was so angry. That man, the rich man, that man deserves to die. And he didn't stop there. David said, and he must restore the lamb fourfold. What did Nathan say? Let's read from 2 Samuel 11. I'm going to read from verse 7 to 13. Nathan said, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonite. Adultery, murder, lying, deception, one sin on top of the other. And David knows his Bible. He knows his Old Testament. He knows that all of these sins deserves capital punishment. He knows he deserves death penalty. But God's, in God's mercy, we see David's response. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And as quickly as that, Nathan said to David, The Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. And really, Psalm 51 is overflow of that repentance. Today, we're going to see what true repentance looks like. And here's our thesis for today. Here's our main point, if we say so. True repentance is a genuine confession of sin, a plea for God's mercy, and leads to praise. So true repentance is a genuine confession of sin, a plea for God's mercy, and leads to praise. We will break this thesis into three imperatives as we seek to answer what do we do when we sin? What do we do when we sin? First, we genuinely confess our sins. Second, we plead for God's mercy. And third, we respond in worship. Let's look at the first point. Genuinely confess your sins. Let's look at verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Here we see David already admitting his sin when he said, blot out my transgressions. But where does David anchors his confession? He anchors his confession on who God is. What did he say? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my 
transgressions. So he anchors his, his confession and his plea on who God is and not on who he is. Let's look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So here, David is not talking about just a ceremonial washing. He's talking about spiritual cleansing that only God can do. And if you notice in these two verses, verses 1 and 2, David used three words to talk about his sin. Let's look at that again. One, he said transgression, which means rebellion. Second, he used iniquity, which means perversion of order. And three, he used sins, which means missing the mark. And what's more interesting in this, he paralleled this three words to describe his sin into the three character of God or attributes of God, which we see first, he paralleled it with God's mercy, second, God's steadfast love, and third, God's abundant mercy, which is his compassion. All of this to imply his genuine confession directed to the character of God. Now, let's look at verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. David is saying here, I know my sin. It haunts me. The guilt is real. Ever, ever before me just means it's right in front of me. I can't run from it. I can't hide from it. Notice what David did not do here. He didn't blame anyone for his sin. What do we do when we sin? We find somebody to blame for our sin, right? And the funny thing is sometimes we do it this way. When we try to ask for forgiveness, we do it this way. I'm sorry for what I said, but I only said it because you said this first. Anyone can relate? Or, I'm sorry for what I did because, but I only did that because you did this first. As long as our apology follows the word but, that's not a genuine confession or apology. I was watching um, Iron Man 2 the other night with my son. Um, I, I know, I know, um, you're thinking I'm watching a movie during Sermon Preparation Week. Don't judge me. <laughs> but there was a scene with, uh, with Tony, Tony Stark, who is Iron Man, who is the character for Iron Man. If you're not watching Marvel, God bless you. We'll talk about, late, uh, about it later. And his best friend, Rhodes. So Rhodes said, Tony, I'm sorry. I should have trusted you more. And, you know, Tony or Iron Man said, no, that's fine. It's partly my fault. And Rhodes said, yeah, it's your fault. It's your mistake. I'm just saying sorry. And I don't think that's the way to apologize. This was certainly true in my workplace as well. Um, uh, the managing director, not now. I'm working with the staff. I'm not talking about Pastor Dave. <laughs> my managing be director before, um, he would go to the salesperson and ask, what happened here? And the salesperson, of course, salespersons are like that. 
Um, salesperson would say, uh, no, it's the procurement. And the procurement would say, oh, it's not us. It's the customer service. Guess what? It's not a customer service. It's the operations. And the list goes on and on and on. It never stops, does it? It's a blame game. I remember in Genesis 3, when God confronted Adam, what did Adam say? Oh, the woman that you gave me. He gave me the fruit and I ate. And what did Eve say? Oh, the serpent deceived me. But here in Psalm 51, we see David owning his sin. That's one of the signs of genuine confession. Now, let's look at verse 4. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Hmm, wait a minute. What about Bathsheba? What about Uriah? What about the nation of Israel? Did he not sin against them? Is that what David is trying to say? No, he did sin to all of them. And he's not trying to deny that or belittle that. Yes, he sinned against Bathsheba. Yes, he sinned against Uriah. Yes, he sinned against the nation of Israel. But, but sin is ultimately against the God of the universe. Who said, you shall not murder? God. Who said, who said you shall not kill? God. Who said, you shall not commit adultery? God. Who said, you shall not lie? God. So sin is ultimately against God. Again, in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 27, we see that it said, but the thing displeased, who? Was it Bathsheba? Was it Uriah? No, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And because of this, we're still in verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In other words, no one can accuse God of injustice. When he judges, he judges rightly. It was clear that David was guilty. Now let's look at verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not saying here that his mother is some kind of uh, prostitute. That's why uh, he was conceived in sin. No, here, David is acknowledging the Adamic sin, the original sin that he has inherited. We see that in Genesis 3, uh, when Adam and Eve, who were supposed to be representatives of humanity, disobeyed God. Paul talks about this more clearly in Romans 5, verse 12. He said, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So, because of Adam's sin, we were all made sinners. Rooting back from, from our conception, we are deprived. And David is acknowledging that. David is acknowledging his depravity to the core of his being. And he knows that God sees the core of his being. Look at verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth 
in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. What did David do um, after he came to know that Bathsheba is pregnant? He was trying to cover up his shocks, right? He was trying to hide it to the point that after adultery, he committed murder. But despite how hard he tries to hide it, God knows it. God sees it. And he realized that. He says in verse 6 that God desires truth and honesty and integrity. God sees the deepest intentions of our heart. And in this event, David's heart wasn't apt to the standard. And this led him to genuinely confess his sin. So from verses 1 to 6, we see that uh, this is the genuine confession. We confess it to the Lord and we fully acknowledge our sin without blaming anyone else. And we acknowledge that ultimately, sin is against God. And if you're here, maybe you're dealing with sin. Friend, now, now is the time to confess it to the Lord. I know it could be shameful. I know you prefer just to hide it. I know it's difficult. But whether we confess it or not, God already knows it. God sees it. One of the most striking verses in the Bible is when Jesus talks about um, adultery in the heart from Matthew 5. What did Jesus say? Some of us think, you know, adultery is just the act of doing it. But what did Jesus say? Anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. God knows every detail that goes into our heart. Sin starts from the heart. And I'm not talking only about men. I'm talking with women as well. Youths, be careful on what you click on the internet. And as we always encourage at as we always encourage here at Redeemer, talk to the elders, seek counsel. And as a matter of fact, it doesn't always need to be or to start with an elder. Perhaps it's a fellow member, fellow Christian who knows you really, really well, someone you trust, someone who is godly and mature. Friends, seek accountability. Seek counsel. Seek help. Be honest. In James 5.16, which Pastor Dave alluded earlier, it says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. And based on the finished work of Christ, God will say, Your sin has been taken away. So, friends, we genuinely confess our sin, then we plead for God's mercy. That brings us to our second point, Plead for God's mercy, verse 7 to 12. Verses 7 to 12. Let's look at verse 7. 
Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, David is reflecting here on Leviticus 14, the cleansing of a leper person. So a hyssop is a plant um, that is to be deep in the blood of the animal sacrifice. Then it will be sprinkled to the leper person, and that leper person will be um, pronounced clean. Now, David is not a leper person, but David is saying, I am a spiritually leper person, and I need you, God, to cleanse me. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, God said, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Friends, when, when God cleanses us, it's no half measure. We will be wider than snow. I remember those antibacterial soap advertisements. Do you know what they claim? They claim kills 99.99 bacteria. See, even the strongest antibacterial cannot clean you 100%. Not God. When God cleanses us, He cleanses us 100%. He wouldn't leave any dirt behind. Now, I know it's hard to imagine um, snow because it's 50 degrees outside. Maybe in your home, your AC is broken. It's hard to imagine snow. But that's the Lord's promise. As dirty as we are, we will be wider than snow. Now, let's look at verse 8. Let me hear the joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David's soul is cast down. We know this, right? When we sinned and we're convicted by it, we feel devastated. We feel broken. We feel so dirty. Friend, know that in those times, you can ask God, God, give me joy. And in David's case, it was through God's word Delivered to the prophet Nathan. What was that good news that David brought, uh, heard that brought him joy? It was the words of Nathan, the Lord has put away your sin. There's nothing more joy-giving and gladness, staring and bone rejoicing than hearing this. You are forgiven. Friends, if that's, if that's the case, that means we find joy in God's Word. Then let's spend more time in God's Word. Listen to God's Word preached and be in a community of believers who studies God's Word. David continues his plea in verse 9. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Why does David ask that? Because David knows God's character. He knows if God would look at his sin, he would be consumed. But notice what David did not say. David did not say, hide your face from me. He said, hide your face from my sins. Pass over my sins. Bury my sins and remember them no more. Erase them. Throw them away and blot them out of your book. And he didn't stop there. Look at verse 10. This is getting more interesting. Create in me a clean heart, 
O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Notice when he said create. Notice the shift of language here. Earlier verses, he was talking about cleansing and removing. But here in verse 10, he said, create. Why? Because David knows that apart from God's transformative power, his heart is desperately wicked above all else. And the word create here is actually from the word bara, which Moses used in Genesis 1 when God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. David understood that cleansing his heart wouldn't fix the problem. His heart is dead. He needed a new heart. He needs God to give him a transformed heart. And Ezekiel 36 talks about this. Verse 26 to 27, and God is speaking, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my words. That's a promise in Ezekiel 36. The next chapter, Ezekiel 37, we see lifeless bones, the dead, coming back to life. And this is what we need, friends. We need God to transform our hearts. We need God to bring us from death to life. And the good news is, this is exactly what Jesus has came to do. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, but Jesus made us alive to God. And in verse 11, we see David said, Cast me not away from your presence and take not the Holy Spirit from me. As we've seen earlier, David doesn't want God to turn his back on him, but only on his sin. Now he hammers that even further by asking God not to leave him, not to take the Holy Spirit away from him. In the Old Testament, God gives a particular people the Holy Spirit to empower them for a certain task. For example, um, we see King Saul. So when King Saul was anointed to be king, God gave him his Holy Spirit. However, uh, during the end of his reign, God took away his Holy Spirit from King Saul. And David knows that. David knows that story. David remembers that removal of the Holy Spirit could mean removal of David's kingship. And that would also mean God abandoning him. David begs God not to do that. And Christians, listen. Those who are followers of Christ, you have been indwelt by the Spirit. And the Bible says He would never leave us nor forsake us. In fact, He is, the Holy Spirit is our seal and our guarantee. Isn't that a great comfort? Let's look at verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. 
So David didn't lose his salvation in the eternal sense, but he lost the joy that accompanies it. Sin sucked his joy. The joy of walking with God, the joy of communing with God. We know this, right? Oftentimes when we sin, it's hard to dwell on God's Word. It's hard to pray. It's hard to spend time with God. And sometimes it's hard to go to the church. Sin has devastating effects. And David prays that God would restore the joy of His presence and uphold with Him with a willing spirit, a spirit that hates sin, a spirit that can overcome sin. Now, after David confessed his sin and pleaded with God for mercy, what's striking is by faith, he seems to have already assumed God's forgiveness. He's moving on to the next thing. He responds in worship of thanksgiving. And that brings us to our third point. Respond in worship, verses 13 to 19. Let's look at verse 13 first. Then I will teach you, then I will teach the transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. That's why I said it seemed that David already assumed God's forgiveness because he said, Then I will teach transgressors your way. David is already making a vow of thanksgiving. He's already thinking of telling others their need for repentance. He wants people to turn away from their sin. But was David wrong to assume God's forgiveness? I don't think so. Because God's forgiveness is based on who He is, not on who we are. Remember verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. There's more than enough mercy in God's tank than our sins can ever be. There's more grace in God's storehouse for us. Now, verse, verses 14 to 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness, O Lord. Open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. David is probably referring to the murder of Uriah when he mentioned blood guiltiness. Guilt prevents him from worshiping. Yes, there are times that our souls are cast down because of our sins. Our guilt consumes us. But once we remember God's forgiveness and God's assurance, we burst into praise. We burst into thankfulness that our sins have been pardoned in Christ. And furthermore, David understands what kind of thanksgiving will delight God. Look at verses 16 to 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O oh God, you will not 
despise. In the Old Testament, the appropriate thanksgiving offering is animal sacrifices. We see that in Leviticus. We also see that in the book of Numbers. And David, being the king, can offer as much as he wants. But he knows those are not enough. That alone won't do it. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Meaning we need a heart posture of humble repentance, a heart that knows that we are spiritually bankrupt, a broken and contrite heart. And this is what the religious leaders in Jesus' time couldn't get. For them, as long as they offer the right sacrifice, as long as they tithe, as long as they pray long prayers, they are accepted by God. But that's not the point. The point is, we offer these sacrifices in a heart posture of humble repentance. And these sacrifices should only make us long for the ultimate sacrifice that will one day cleanse us from all unrighteousness and sins. One sacrifice for the forgiveness of all sins. And what's amazing, David's story is not just a random story that for some reason was included in our Bibles. No, God has purposely orchestrated each and every single story for his redemptive purpose. Out of David's adultery with Bathsheba sprung up an offspring. Solomon, not the child after Bathsheba got pregnant, but, the, but after that, Solomon was born. The one who would build God's temple where thousands of bulls and rams would be offered. And though imperfect as he is, like his father David, in their line sprang up the offspring who would be the only reason why God has forgiven David for his adultery, murder, and deception. Because fast forward to 1,000 years to the future, that son of David became the ultimate sacrifice and paid his sin by dying on the cross. Jesus, the son of David, the son of God, the perfect and greater David, the true king who never sinned, to whom all the sacrifices pointed to, died not only for David's sin, but for our sins. And as Pastor John preached to us last week through Psalm 16, David himself prophesied about the Holy One. It reads, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And then the Apostle Peter picks this up in his sermon in Acts 2. He said, David foresaw the resurrection of Christ, which means this greater and perfect David who died on the cross did not remain dead. He rose from the grave. Sin has been defeated. In fact, he didn't stop there. 
He ascended to heaven. He is now reigning and he is now interceding for sinners like you and me. And later today, we will have the opportunity to celebrate that and remember all of that through our communion. And friend, if you're sitting here and this is all news to you, well, this is a good news. This is a good news. I encourage you to turn away from your sins and trust this Jesus, this perfect and greater David. Kids, kids, twins, and youths, and adults, and beyond adults, Confess your sin and plead to God for mercy. And as you do, First John 7 assures us that God is faithful and trust to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I remember Dr. TJ's preaching two weeks ago from Psalm 32. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Indeed, he is blessed. Now, if you look at Psalm 50, if you have your Bibles, just look at the chapter previous this, before this. Look at it at a glance for maybe two seconds. Chapter 50 actually talks about God being the judge. I'll just read a couple of verses. In verse 4, it says, God, he calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. Now, verse 23, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. The one who orders his way rightly, I will show salvation of God. Now, that's Psalm 50. If you flip to the next two chapters, Psalm 52, it talks about God's mercy. Let me read verses 8 to 9. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God, I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. Now, Psalm 50, God is the judge. Psalm 52, God is merciful. How can God be both a judge, righteous judge, and merciful. Psalm 50, Psalm 52. The answer, through the cross, which we see in Psalm 51. Now, the last two verses from Psalm 51 seems a bit odd. But this is David's prayer for Jerusalem. As King David he anticipated, as king, David anticipated that his, his sin has consequences for the kingdom. Look at verses 18 to 19. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So as the psalm concludes, David is asking here that God's blessing would not be removed from the kingdom. As he, the king, is restored, he prays that God would also restore the kingdom. Now, as we close this sermon, I want to go back to the couple that I told you earlier. The husband committed adultery. His wife came to know about it. And this adultery brought forth a child. You can just imagine the pain and devastation that this couple has gone through. Devastated, cast down. And over the years, trust became very, very difficult. And when all hope seemed lost, God showed his mercy to this couple. God opened the eyes of the wife and she saw her own sinfulness, her own sin of unfaithfulness to God. She was convicted and felt God's forgiveness, which overflowed that made him forgive, made her forgive her husband. And God, in his grace, convicted the husband of his sin. And God saved the husband. He gave him a new heart and his Holy Spirit. God forgave him through the finished work of Christ on the cross. It was still not easy for this couple, but walking alongside the church, the loving community of the church, by God's grace, this couple was restored. This couple now dedicate their lives to heralding the gospel of Jesus Christ and seeing disciples made and mature in Christ. Friends, through repentance and confession, forgiveness and restoration are possible. Though our sins are many, God's mercy never ends. Oh, Father, our text today is heavy, but at the same time, it's full of hope. God, we pray that you will continue to fix our eyes on the greater and perfect David, your son, Jesus. In him, we find forgiveness. In him, we find restoration. In him, we find freedom. In him, we find redemption. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.